think the burden is on you if you think it's true that the reason we have all these wonderful expressions is because of copyright. <laughs> Well, you mean aside from uh, threats on email and phone calls and uh, people who said I was going to hell? <laughs> welcome to Such That Cast. And if you're one of the few who have been awaiting a new episode, welcome back and thanks for your patience. The initial idea I had of posting an episode every week just seems increasingly insane right now, and I've just been feeling very guilty for not posting an episode since December. Well, anyway, here's finally a new episode, and it's a good one. Today I'm talking to David Kopsel, whom I've had the pleasure of meeting several times since he came to the Netherlands. I should say that I've always admired his writings, and I pretty much agreed entirely with his philosophical argument to the effect that patenting and intellectual property law has just become completely absurd with the advent of new and emerging technologies. I have to admit, though, that I didn't really share his vision of a world without copyright protection. Surely we must protect creative expressions, right? Well, after this conversation, I did start to see his vision more clearly. And I actually think now that Kupsel is right, and that the burden of proof lies on those who claim that IP law actually protects innovation. Perhaps especially in light of the many established artists who have gone independent recently. And of course, the very tragic loss of Aaron Swartz. But I'll let you make up your own mind after listening to the creative and controversial mind of David Kupsel. Enjoy. <laughs> trying to figure out your CV, uh, and I'm not sure I want to figure it out. Yeah, good luck. <laughs> uh, one thing that strikes me as very uh, impressive in some sense is that you became a doctor of law in 1995, and then you received your PhD in philosophy two years later. Mm -hmm. uh, so first of all, how did you do a PhD on a topic like that in two years? Uh, so you apparently started your law degree first, and yep. then switched immediately to philosophy? I did them simultaneously. Oh, so I began things. as a law student in 1991, and after the first year, I was more or less despondent uh, because it was not what I expected, and I was not enjoying the experience. Right. And I had a good friend uh, who was a philosophy professor at the University of Buffalo, and he talked me into applying uh, to uh, do my PhD there. And I began that in 1992. So there were a couple of good things that came out of that. One was I was no longer despondent. I had uh, other options and other things uh, other than law school going on at the same time. Um, the other nice thing was that uh, I got an assistantship, which uh, was a full tuition waiver, so I didn't have to pay for my JD. So I, I did both simultaneously. I finished uh, my schooling and the law degree in '95. so the next two years involved my practicing law uh, full-time as a lawyer while I wrote my uh, dissertation. Wow. <laughs> so that's how I managed to do it. So you didn't have an interest in philosophy before you started law? I had taken a really wonderful course from a, a very brilliant logician, John Corcoran, uh, at the University of Buffalo as an undergrad. Um, and that was the extent of my involvement with philosophy as an undergrad. Um, it wasn't until I began my Ph.D. Uh, that I began to seriously study philosophy. And was it, I didn't remember Barry Smith was one of your supervisors during your Ph.D.? Was he one of the main people who sort of converted you, so to speak? Yeah, he was my major supervisor. He supervised my uh, dissertation. Uh, uh, he would be, I guess, my promoter here in Europe. Um, and uh, he was extremely influential in the way my philosophizing developed. So, uh, he, yeah, I think now as I do uh, philosophy as a profession, uh, it is largely um, based upon the uh, influence of um, Barry Smith mm -hmm. um, and how he sort of guided me 
into a field in which I had very little um, uh, formal schooling before that. Right. I actually want to get back to that because I think I see a lot of Barry Smith in what you've been doing. Yeah. Um, but maybe even f before that, so you said you were really disappointed by law, uh, but what made you attracted to that in the beginning? I had um, worked, my first real full-time job after college was as a confidential clerk uh, for the New York State Attorney General's office on a very important trial called uh, the Love Canal trial. So Love Canal was something you may have heard of. It was a major chemical disaster, basically. It was the, the major um, incident that sparked what is now called the Superfund in the U.S., which is a federal program that cleans up chemical sites. Um, and the state of New York sued Occidental Chemical uh, over that uh, disaster, and uh, the trial was this nine-month federal trial uh, in western New York where I lived. And uh, I was hired as a confidential clerk, largely because they had these um, sort of monstrous desktop, you know, they, weren't, they, they weren't even laptops, they were these uh, portable computers okay. with plasma screens, and, and I knew something about computers, so that's why I was hired. I became interested in law because of that experience and uh, sort of unduly idealistic about what law involved. Uh, and that was how I became disappointed as a student and then eventually as a lawyer. Mm -hmm. What part of law were you disappointed by? The, the law itself or the way lawyers are educated? or A little bit of both. Mm -hmm. So, And they're related. Law is, there's a saying in critical legal theory that law is politics pure and simple. And um, I'm afraid that tends to be true. So what uh, you know, my idealism about uh, the law and its connection with justice uh, quickly uh, had to be replaced with a sort of hard-nosed pragmatism about how law is actually pra practiced. Mm -hmm. um, and the educational lawyers is pretty much the same thing. Um, in law school, you're basically taught how to, more or less, how to fill in the uh, blanks. Um, and do the sort of mechanics of practicing law. And there's only a very little attention paid to anything like uh, theory. Right. That is disappointing because I always had this feeling that there's a very close connection between law and philosophy in terms of, uh, especially between law and analytic philosophy. And that attention to distinctions and, and, uh, and making comparisons. And, uh, there, is a, there is a connection in the sense that um, you have to learn... Uh, good analytical techniques in terms of legal terminology and the application of uh, facts to terms. Um, but it turns out to be closer to the sort of sophism that uh, um, uh, Socrates and Aristotle and uh, Plato uh, railed against right. as being the worst uh, in the courts as well as in philosophy. Yeah, I've seen you many times later uh, criticizing your opponents for, for misunderstanding your argument as, as being a philosophical argument, not a legal argument. Yeah, well, there's a... So the predominant um, view in uh, law is is positivism. Yeah. And, uh, you know, that that is, that is, to me, one of the major problems in, uh, in terms of achieving justice. Um, because, you know, if, if you are a positivist, then you don't see there, there being some grounding of uh, legal arguments in principles. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's where I really uh, uh, find myself diverging greatly from my legal colleagues. Right, and you're a minority there? Yeah, uh, I, I, yeah a clear minority. There are other um, uh, legal philosophers as well as attorneys who have my sort of uh, uh, idealism about what law ought to be. Um, but most uh, lawyers fall into the sort of positivist worldview, probably just out of necessity, mm -hmm. um, as well as out of training. I think it's a large part of legal training. Interesting. Uh, I'm going to get to how this translates over to philosophy, both chronologically and thematically. Um, but I'm also, as always, I'm, I'm curious to see sort of where people are coming from. And, uh, and I know very, very little about your background, uh, your college years and the years before that. Uh, what is your first of all? Where do you come from originally? Yeah, I was uh, I was born in a in a uh, in Buffalo, New York, which is um, every time I say New York in Europe, people think of New York City, 
Buffalo couldn't be further from New York City. It is literally the farthest point in New York State from New York City. It's on the Great Lakes, um, and I grew up in a rural part of western New York uh, on a farm, uh, sort of uh, with the traditional uh, rural American lifestyle, yeah. <laughs> uh, except that my parents were both academics. Uh, oh, really? So my, my father uh, uh, was eventually chair of the English department at uh, Community College in Buffalo. Mm. My mother uh, did uh, work in education administration. Uh, and had a background in uh, English as well. Right. Uh, so I guess uh, academia was somehow in the cards for me too. Yeah, but um, also the farm. Yeah, well, the, <laughs> uh, we didn't have a working farm. We had a sort of, well, I guess, a gentleman's ah, farm where the animals were secondary. They were not a source of uh, income. Right. And did they try to inspire you or push you in certain directions academically or...? or? My parents were very liberal uh, and encouraged me to be curious and explore. Mm -hmm. um, so my, I think probably their greatest disappointment was when I went to law school. <laughs> yeah. uh, and then I somehow might have redeemed myself when I ended up uh, doing philosophy as well. Right. Um, but they, they really were very liberal and encouraged me to, to go my own way, mm -hmm. uh, as well as providing me with a lot of opportunity to explore topics and debate. We, we debated things around the dinner table ever since I could remember. Great. Um, and that, so I, I mean, I, I credit that experience. I was an only child, uh, so they treated me as an adult, sort of, <laughs> uh, from an early age. And yeah. that really did uh, help me a great deal when it came time to, to act like an adult in the real world. Uh, yeah, yeah. Were there other things you explored before you became an adult? <laughs> well, I'm not sure um, when that happened, actually, but Yeah, I, I, I did video production for quite some time and, and got a couple of grants to do um, documentaries. I think I got my first one when I was 16. Oh, wow. um, and uh, I did uh, a number of films, three um, funded from um, small grants from the local arts council. Mm -hmm. um, and I thought that was what I wanted to do with my life, actually, for a while, was uh, do uh, documentaries and other films. Uh, but that's a very difficult area to break into, and um, my college uh, experience led me in a different direction. Right. Okay, so you did eventually end up in philosophy and started your PhD on the ontology of cyberspace. Yeah. Uh, and already there, and that's one of the links I wanted to see, I, I'm, pretty much everything you've done since then seems to be um, rooted in a very strong emphasis on the link between ontology and ethics. Uh, which is also where I kind of see Barry Smith uh, being a big uh, inspiration originally. Yeah. Uh, why is that so important? Well, because I think like a lot of uh, philosophers, I have trouble with uh, the foundations of ethics. Mm -hmm. So, you know, any, uh, as many of your listeners, and I'm sure you are aware, this is one of the major hurdles for uh, bridging applied and meta-ethics. Mm -hmm. I, I still lack a firm foundation, uh, you know, a grounding of ethical principles in s something without falling, running afoul of the naturalistic fallacy. Mm -hmm. So when I'm confronted with ethical issues, my tendency, and again, this is probably partly because I was trained by Barry Smith, my tendency is to first worry about what the things we're talking about really are. Yeah. And then I hope, and this is sort of my ongoing challenge, uh, to then more clearly ground ethical considerations and maybe eventually principles in something solid. Right. So when I was trying to figure out, and the ontology of cyberspace wasn't primarily a work of ethics. I was just trying to figure out what the, the, the uh, objects of cyberspace were uh, given a weird legal situation in which the objects are treated as belonging to two previously mutually exclusive categories. Um, so that wasn't really a, that wasn't really a work of ethics. No. It has ethical implications, um, and it has legal implications, and, and I think that work was more about the legal implications. Um, and I think those implications are important because the way we treat cyber objects turns out to be really quite um, material to our economy. Um, and we can see now in the sort of patent wars that um, Apple and 
uh, HTC and other uh, and Google and yeah. others are engaging in that this is a real uh, costly issue as well. And if people had just listened to me 15 years <laughs> ago, <laughs> we would have realized that you know, the, these objects ought to be treated as a kind uh, and not two kinds. This is, I think, the, the, why I, you know, I approach things the way I do and the uh, importance of doing so. So when you started looking into the ontology of cyberspace, was that when you started feeling that there's something fishy with the whole IP patenting system? Yeah. You didn't have that uh, coming into it? Not at all, no. I guess, like most people, I just uh, worked under the general background assumption that intellectual property and its categories made sense. Um, but when I started you know, worrying about uh, software uh, and what sort of thing it is, uh, I realized that there was something wrong with the law. And um, you, cannot, you cannot have a system like the law that treats objects as belonging to two mutually exclusive categories um, continue to do so without some challenge, either to the categories that you're treating them as or to the system that treats them that way. At that point, my concern wasn't that you know, there was something wrong, ethically speaking, about intellectual property, but there was something metaphysically wrong with the way they were treating these objects. And it wasn't just cyber objects. Right. So the implication is um, much greater, and I think I, I'm now I'm closing the loop on that with the latest... Uh, work I've done in it. Absolutely, yeah. Because this, your PhD became your first book uh, published back in 2000, if yeah. I'm right. Uh, and, and that in itself, uh, well, first of all, I have to say I really find it amusing to read some of the online discussions about your books. Um, oh, yeah. Also because you engage quite passionately yourself. Uh, so even more than that book, there's been a lot of controversy surrounding your books on intellectual property in connection with uh, gene patenting mm -hmm. and nanotechnology. Um, where you basically argue that these new and emerging technologies have just pushed intellectual property too far to the breaking point, so to speak. Um, well, actually, that's one of the things I wanted to ask about you. Uh, do you feel that there's been something wrong with the system from the beginning, or is it just that these new technologies have made these systems obsolete? And now I believe that there has been something wrong since the beginning. So I've, my work has been, over the three books you uh, just mentioned, has been to sort of draw a, a coherent theory of expressions, because that's what we're talking about. And in my books on cyberspace genes and nanotechnology, I'm just trying to sort out how the law has treated expressions uh, in a way that is now completely messed up because of the technology. Right. So I would say my arguments apply just as um, strongly to steam engines and uh, um, papyrus scrolls as they do to nanotechnology and computers uh, software. And, and for the listeners who haven't read your work, uh, do you have like a short summary of your main view? Well, my main view has, so un, in ontology of cyberspace, uh, I guess my ontology of expressions was um, that uh, anything uh, made by man intentionally produced is an expression and there is no, um, and expressions uh, are not divisible uh, um, coherently according to any other rule. Mm -hmm. So the law had treated utilitarian expressions as different in kind from um, aesthetic expressions. Right. This is the major division between copyright and patent. Mm -hmm. But I can't find a single instance of an object that um, falls neatly into one or the other category right. and can't be argued to be um, one or the other. Yeah. So I, in that work, I said, software isn't really so mysterious. Works of software are uh, man-made objects intentionally produced that just happen to be in a medium which is um, very fluid and flexible. Mm -hmm. I've had to add to it just a little bit. So uh, I haven't revised my views. I have um, added a little caveat to what uh, makes something an expression. And this has to do with the question of why we uh, seek protection under intellectual property to begin with. So now I would say um, that we have to add the element of design. So not just intentionally produced, but it, uh, in, uh, intentionally designed as well. Right. 
So there's all sorts of things that we can make. Um, so man, I said before, man-made objects intentionally produce. So I can intentionally cough, right? Um, but that isn't expressive. And so I have to refine a little bit, and that's what I think the latest book does, um, and add the caveat that it also has to be a product of uh, intentional design as well. I have to say, I was, in the beginning, I was a bit, um, well, I, I wanted to believe you in a sense, <laughs> but I had some problems initially. I'm more on your side now, I think. Um, but one argument that could always be leveled against you is that, yeah, it's not a perfect system. Uh, it has its flaws, um, but it's much better than nothing at all. And, and, and I think that's the main reason why people are having problems really jumping on board entirely, at least, uh, that abolishing intellectual property, really, is that even possible? What would be the consequences of that? Uh, do you really see a world without intellectual property as working as well as it does now, or as less badly than it does now? <laughs> okay, so that's an essentially utilitarian viewpoint, yeah. um, and it presumes something that isn't uh, in evidence, as we say in the law, mm-hmm. uh, that somehow the system, uh, as it exists is uh, largely beneficial or increases happiness in some way. Uh, We have no evidence uh, that that's true. The amount of money that is made in, let's just take media, okay, um, which is the realm of copyright, Um, the amount of money that is made is tremendous, right? There's probably worldwide trillions of dollars that have been made because of um, movies like James Bond and other sorts of wonderful things. Um, Only uh, two or three percent of that goes to the artists. Okay, so there's a great deal, a huge margin that goes to people who are not actually creative in the traditional sense. Right. Okay, so if we're worried about encouraging creativity, then it seems to me you have a poor argument if you're relying upon uh, this government-sponsored monopoly Uh, as the reason why artists are encouraged to create. And there are many examples of artists who work successfully outside of the traditional media production systems, um, enrich themselves, enrich uh, our world of expressions, uh, our creative, uh, and do so without uh, relying upon the power of copyright to do so. So... There, this, this is a huge assumption. that I think the burden is on you if you think it's true that the reason we have all these wonderful expressions is because of copyright. Precisely, yeah. I think, I mean, if we look at the body of art that has been created uh, since time began, most of it was created without any copyright. Um, most of that which will survive the next thousand years was probably created uh, without copyright. Right. Shakespeare never enjoyed any um, privilege to copyright. Mm -hmm. Look at Charles Dickens. He's one of my favorite examples. So Charles Dickens was protected by copyright in England, but he only made it big when his works were pirated in in the United States. So he was actually earning more income, largely because people were stealing his works and then became interested in him and wanted to divert their funds to him um, by paying to go see him read or speak, etc. Right. The middlemen have been have been taking in the bulk of the profits for uh, creative production mm-hmm. uh, since copyright began. Yeah. Uh, book publishers uh, and uh, you know, movie producers, uh, all of the sort of intermediaries between the creative artist and the public, uh, who figured out how to game the system, essentially to maximize their profits while minimizing their uh, payments to artists have benefited greatly, and they stand to lose a great deal. Right. But they're also the one with the biggest legal apparatus and the biggest lobbying uh, power, so to speak. Absolutely, and that's why every time uh, Mickey Mouse is due to go into the public domain, they extend the copyright. Right, yeah. So besides raising awareness and so forth as you're doing, what, what is the best way to fight this regime? How do you see a transition happening? Well, it's already beginning to happen. Artists who are taking it upon themselves to use the new media, um, like the Internet, um, to get their art to the public without the middlemen are 
paving the way for uh, a future where uh, artists benefit more directly and more fairly for their work and uh, the state monopoly that we've been had for the past 200 years is yep. no longer necessary. And that's been the case with music and that's been the case with movies. Um, that is becoming the case now with physical objects uh, as I hope you know, the final stage of this reveals um, that we can produce and grow wealthy uh, and encourage uh, creativity uh, without the need for uh, an oppressive uh, state monopoly. Right. So I, I think open source projects and software are an excellent example. Kickstarter and other forms of funding of projects yep. um, through crowdsourcing. Learning how to use the new media rather than to try to um, punish those who figured out how to use it yep. uh, will pave the way for uh, a more just future of creative expression. It seems like the internet is a necessary precondition for this to happen. Mm -hmm. uh, would you go so far as to say that it's almost deterministic as well, that once we have this system in place, this is inevitable? That's the argument in my last book, uh, yeah. Innovation and Nanotechnology. So in Who Owns You, um, I confronted the question of whether we ought to um, treat a naturally occurring product as being expressive or as being... Uh, part of a commons. And uh, I think as you've seen, if you've seen the discussion of that debate, that was a hot-button topic for yeah. a lot of um, intellectual property law practitioners. But I became sort of um, fatalistic about it. I, I realized that, you know, this is the sort of the dying gasps of people clinging to a system which is actually going to disappear anyway. Um, because of the nature of technology, mm -hmm. because the tools for distribution and production are becoming so ubiquitous and cheap um, that people like them who want to try to create monopolies where it's uh, ethically questionable uh, are going to be overwhelmed by um, the, the emerging methods of distribution creation right. and creation. Um, so, yeah, the, the, I think it is deterministic. I think that uh, what we are seeing is not a reaction. It's just a natural evolution of the tools of production. Yeah, I seem to remember one example you mentioned once that with this system in place and, and sort of this last dying uh, attempts, uh, you get all these weird side effects uh, or implications, uh, one of them being that... that that purified oxygen could have been patented back in the day if they had the same system back then? Well, I think that is, that is the sort of quintessential prime example of how the system has gone askew. Mm -hmm. um, the clear implication of what has happened in, you know, regarding patenting is that you could get patents for things like purified oxygen because for, uh, under the current law, it's treated as an isolated um, product. And isolated products of nature are somehow magically patentable. Mm -hmm. To me, as a philosopher, the question is, is an isolated uh, molecule of oxygen an artifact? Because to me, the distinction between uh, a creation and something found is uh, the distinction between nature and artifact. Yeah. So the law, uh, again, now has made a very strange and I think completely messed up um, uh, rule that treats certain p products of nature if they come about in certain ways as somehow becoming artifact. Mm -hmm. And the example I've used and debated frequently with patent attorneys is the molecules of oxygen and all of them admit that under the current legal regime a molecule of oxygen, let's assume right now that I'm Joseph Priestley, right? And I do the first experiment now and I accumulate oxygen by heating mercuric oxide. You as my patent attorney would tell me, you've got to patent this, David, because um, this is something that is uh, new, non-obvious. It's an isolated product of nature and under the current law, um, you can get a patent for it. And I could become extraordinarily rich because so far, right, this is the only way we know of uh, accumulating quantities of purified oxygen. And the patent itself will specify in the claims that not only am I uh, 
capable of monopolizing the process, but the molecule of oxygen too, right. which is exactly the case in genes. Yeah, yeah. So it's not just that um, when they started isolating genes uh, for genetic testing, um, they were getting uh, patents on the processes uh, or the process of testing for a particular gene, but also the strings, the nucleotide sequences themselves, uh, unmodified, but they claim it's modified because, right, we're indicating where the gene begins and where it ends, and in, in your DNA right now, there's, you know, there's no, um, y- your genes are a continuous string, right, um, and uh, they're wrong partly because there are stop and promoter codons which indicate where genes begin. Um, but m- moreover, the implication is that any natural product, if we can find out some way to synthesize it, uh, can become monopolized uh, through the current patent regime. And for me, and I think you know, if you understand the logical implications of this, this poses some s- significant ontological questions. Right. right? Let's say X oxygen molecule is um, you know, produced by photosynthesis by this plant outside. And Y oxygen molecule is produced by me by heating some quantity of mercuric oxide. Those two molecules, in every sense, are identical except for their origin. Mm-hmm. So I, I was curious about how it is that we grant monopolies for identical objects that have different histories. Mm-hmm. Does this make any sense in terms of um, promoting innovation? Is there some sort of more sensible way um, to uh, distinguish between artifacts and, and nature in a way that will encourage innovation? And I, I, I do think that I honed in on it when I uh, realized that it's the design that is critical. Right. So although I can, and, and I think the, the analogy with a sneeze or a cough, uh, for instance, is, is more or less precise, um, I can intend to produce all sorts of things that I don't design. And if we're going to encourage creation, creativity, uh, innovation, uh, then the essence of what we need to uh, encourage is, is unique designs. So if I come up with a new way to make oxygen, so like uh, Nicholson and Carlisle, uh, a couple years after Priestley developed, um, you know, it, it discovered phlogiston, or what we now know as oxygen, oxygen um, they uh, did some experiments with electrolysis, which also produced pure oxygen um, from water. Their process was new and unique and interesting and innovative. And the design of that process is what ought to be encouraged. If we're going to encourage creativity through some legal regime, it makes no sense to me, and it violates certain logical principles, I think, um, to extend the monopoly to the product where the product itself was not designed. Yeah. So in, in each case, ni- neither Priestley nor Carlisle and Nicholson had any role in the nature of oxygen, in its design, as it, as it were. It's, they had a role in um, discovering new ways to bring it about through natural processes. So uh, they couldn't have, how would they have been affected if uh, Priestley had patented oxygen originally. Yeah, had he gotten a patent for oxygen um, and the patent claimed the molecule as well as the process, they would need to get some sort of license from him to produce it through their means because the, the monopoly in the patent um, covers uh, the product as well as the process. And this is where so this is a problem with the law that dates back to an old, old case, a Park Davis case uh, having to do with synthetic adrenaline from the early 1900s. And there they got a patent on not just the process of, um, of synthesizing it or extracting it in that case, but also on the product itself, even though adrenaline is a naturally occurring compound. Um, so th- it would have prevented them from, from distributing their accumulations of oxygen without paying some royalty to Priestley. As far as I understand it, and this is what other uh, patent attorneys seem to confirm as well, um, but that's okay to them. (laughs) I think it was uh, 
Larry Lessig was talking about common sense in law, a rare phenomenon. Yeah, increasingly rare, it seems. <laughs> yeah. uh, so those are the implications. Those would have been implications with, uh, with regard to oxygen. So what would what if this uh, development continues? What are the implications with regard to gene sequencing and, and basically what kind of future are we going to find ourselves in if this continues? Well, we see it already with with genes. So um, the conclusion of the Human Genome Project included um, the ability to, uh, well, included a, a race to try to um, hone in on specific human genes uh, and figure out what they do. So as these genes and their mutations have been discovered, um, there, there has been what I described as a gold rush to, to, um, to patent them. Uh, and it turns out some of the most valuable ones are diagnostic genes. And uh, I think the implication has been that um, genetic testing and diagnosis is, is more expensive than it needs to be. Um, and the prime example is the one that is now the subject of a major lawsuit in the United States regarding the breast cancer genes. Yeah. Um, the tests for um, uh, BRCA1 and 2 mutations cost $3,000 each. Actually conducting the test only really costs about $300, and it's getting cheaper all the time. The right. technology, of course, makes it easier and easier, as well as cheaper, um, to do the actual testing. So I think for health, uh, uh, this is a major problem, uh, and it has, I, I don't, I think it has been responsible for keeping um, a lot of people from getting tested, as well as um, keeping our healthcare costs high. And in nanotechnology, the implications, I think, are similar, um, but not for health, it's for ordinary products. If you are able to get patents on elemental components of, of new nanotechnological advances, right? So you, you, oxygen molecules are just a short step away from other sorts of um, naturally found elements that could be used to build nanotechnological devices or materials. Yeah. And if people start getting... Uh, monopolies on those elements, it's going to create new patent thickets, the likes of which we haven't seen yet. But think in terms of the smartphone phone patent wars, right? Yeah. If you've ever seen online, and you should look it up, um, the cell phone patent thicket, there are some nice diagrams that show how um, all of the various patents, thousands of patents that exist in the various components of our smartphones, uh, softwares, are actually keeping the prices uh, uh, of of these devices uh, too high, are causing litigation that doesn't have to happen, uh, and don't seem to be doing much to encourage innovation. Right. Uh, so we've been talking a lot in terms of utilitarian consequences, mm -hmm. but if I understand it correctly, you have a more deontological approach at bottom. Uh, and I also think you're writing on a new book now on the more deontological foundations of law. Underlying all of all of my work has been an assumption about the nature of property itself. Uh, and this, I, I again, traces back to the sort of phenomenological uh, um, background I, I have, thanks again to Barry Smith. Uh, he introduced me to a philosopher um, that almost no one has heard of, but people are becoming more familiar with, uh, named Adolf Reinach. Reinach was a, he was a student of, but more a popularizer of, of Husserl. Uh, of all of his students, Reinach was said to be best at translating Husserl okay. for an ordinary audience, <laughs> as well as a sophisticated audience. A small feat. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He was also a lawyer and, uh, and a philosopher, um, and Reinach did a lot of his work in the phenomenological foundations of law. He was interested in what makes the phenomenology of contract and... He wrote a really important piece. His major work, I think, is the Operary Foundations of the Civil Law, in which he describes the ontology of, uh, of obligation that arises out of contract. It's a wonderful piece, and, and few people read it, um, but everybody should. It really um, sort of anticipates Searle um, about 50 or 60 years before Searle. And Searle has acknowledged this as well, uh, uh, that uh, since he was introduced to it partly through Barry Smith's work um, in sort of uh, um, finding and then pop 
popularizing some of whose, uh, some of Reinach's work. So I've been interested in the phenomenological foundations of property. And this relates to my work in intellectual property because I'm interested in what might ground our relations to expressions. He explains how obligations are grounded in um, states of affairs, he calls them. Uh, you, you can, do you know German? Yeah. Okay, so Sackverhalt? Um, this is uh, states of affairs. This is what he describes of, as being sort of the case of the matter when an obligation arises. Um, there are certain necessary states of affairs. And his description of this in contract, uh, to me, is compelling. Um, because it, he argues that this is the ground for the necessity and I think the, um, the justice of contract law. So if I make a promise to you um, that you accept both internally and externally and I you know, have similar state, you know, states of affairs uh, surrounding my promise, uh, there is something that happens in the world, something that changes. Right, yeah. uh, an obligation arises and this is a real thing. Um, and there are duties uh, relating to that obligation and that they'd either be performed uh, or somehow otherwise um, uh, fulfilled or dismissed. Mm, that does sound like so. Yeah, it does. So actually, uh, Reinach does a very um, uh, thorough investigation of, of claims and obligations that, that does, I think, anticipate Searle. And Searle, uh, without, I think, uh, realizing it at the time, uh, was doing a lot of what Reinach had done. Now, I think there are similar, um, th there are ways to describe our relations to real property um, that are uh, similar. And I think it's rooted in uh, the nature of our possession of objects. Mm -hmm. So without getting deeply into that, I think the laws surrounding um, tangible property are grounded in as much as they have to do with um, states of affairs or what Searle would call brute facts right, of possession. And in fact, the law, when you know, there's a saying in the law, possession is nine-tenths of the law. I think the law actually recognizes this. And this is one of the interesting cases in which the law historically has developed around what I think are sort of good... Uh, foundations. The same cannot be said to be true about expressions. And this is where we have to be clear about the type token distinction. Right. So let's suppose I create a statue. The extent to which I can claim ownership over that object ends at the token. The type um, cannot be possessed to the exclusion of others. So this is what I think the distinction between the objects of intellectual property law and the objects of real property law is really about. And that's why we need intellectual property law under the utilitarian theory that it is necessary to promote innovation because types are free to be used by anyone. So we have to create this sort of fiction in which types can be controlled. This is all getting back to the question of where I think justice comes from. And I think that in dealing with intellectual property law and property law as I have in the works I've written on, I've been skirting around and avoiding the real question of how it is that um, justice is, is grounded as Reinach says it is and as I claim it is in some um, brute facts or states of affairs, and how justice emerges out of all this. This, I admit, is a huge gap in everything I've done, uh, and it's a missing part of what Reinach was doing. But in, I think it's a. I think that he was getting at something, and it would be a phenomenological account of justice, and that's sort of what I hope to accomplish in the next before I die, <laughs> next ten, fifteen years. I'm not going to make any promises. Could you reveal something about how you think about sort of plugging that gap? Yeah. So actually, it has to be kind of. Multidisciplinary. So phenomenology is necessarily multidisciplinary. Mm -hmm. It has roots in psychology and other fields as well. And philosophers don't like to have to uh, admit they don't know something. <laughs> um, but there's a whole lot we don't know about um, 
how it is that our brains operate and uh, why uh, we consider certain things to be um, important or not. I think ethics has a big gaping gap in it between practice and theory. I think every philosopher knows this. It's a huge embarrassment in many ways yeah. um, for the field because one of the areas in which we still have some sway, right, um, because of our expertise, um, lacks the rigor that other disciplines have. True. To close that gap, to to make it more rigorous is going to have to require going outside of philosophy. And I think that this is what I like about Reinach's approach. Okay, He looks at um, psychological bases of claims and obligations. I think we need to look at the historical account of uh, uh, property and other sorts of um, objects. And I, I, I think we are not going to solve it as philosophers. Right. Um, so there's only... We're an important part of the puzzle. We're an important part of the puzzle, yeah. I think we can point out this lacuna. Uh, we can admit it. We can reach out to other fields, try to figure out you know, an account of what makes something just or not. I have a very personal stake in the notion that there is justice. Um, my, my family were victims of the Holocaust. Oh, wow. uh, so when I am confronted by ethical relativists, I have a hard time uh, not getting a little uh, uh, riled up uh, over the notion that there is or or that there might not be some sort of real foundation or grounding of justice. Mm -hmm. Uh, I just, you know, perhaps because of my uh, personal history, uh, but also I think viscerally, I think many of us feel that... uh, that there must be something necessarily wrong with certain ways of behaving or certain modes of thinking. So I, I, it is, a, it is an, probably the project that I will be working on for the rest of my life and probably with little success. <laughs> uh, other better philosophers have tried and, uh, and failed. Um, but I do think it's important. I think this is where we need to focus our energies. Right. Sounds fascinating and, and sure to cause controversy as well, I'm sure. Uh, and there's another area in which you, I think you've caused a bit of controversy as well, but at least you have put forward some quite controversial thoughts um, because you were also executive director of the Council for Secular Humanism yep. uh, some time ago. And I just wrote at least, I uh, just read at least one uh, really strongly worded piece on, on what you described as the culture war in America. Oh, yeah. Uh, between sort of fundamentalist Christians and secular humanists. I think this was not too long after Bush was elected, and, right. and you saw that as sort of the the uh, the ultimate sign that they won, in a sense, uh, or at least that this long-standing agenda has resulted in in him being, well, not elected, perhaps, but appointed. Uh, <laughs> well, I'm not going to quibble with the Supreme Court about it, um, <laughs> but yeah, there, from 2003 to 2008, I was executive director of the Council for Secular Humanism, uh, which uh, is, I think still the largest uh, um, uh, not-for-profit humanist organization uh, in the world. And it was at a time when American fundamentalism uh, appeared to be ascendant. Uh, The first Bush election and the second one um, revolved largely around his ability to um, motivate uh, evangelical Christians to the polls. And there was, there are, uh, I think it's still a, a major force in American politics, and I think it's still a retrograde force in American politics. Um, I think that uh, you know, when, when, I, when I was at the council, uh, one of the things we daily uh, confronted uh, was the assault on, on not just common sense, but uh, science. Um, that was led by and is led by these forces. And I think it set America back. Uh, Those eight years saw uh, um, a sort of turning back away from progress, turning away from science, uh, and turning away from, uh, I think, just uh, common sense as well in ways that are not even Christian. So uh, this is one of the one of my major problems with that brand of uh, of Christianity is that 
uh, from what I know about Christianity, uh, and I'm not totally uh, unaware of its uh, tenets, uh, a lot of what um, they promoted and believed uh, was counter to anything I read in, in the Bible when I did read the Bible. Um, and I think also uh, was counter to uh, the, the better churches, the more rational uh, sort of mainstream churches. Uh, that exist around the world. So yeah, uh, people didn't like me for that either. <laughs> what kinds of reactions did you get? Well, you mean aside from uh, threats on email and phone calls and uh, people who said I was going to hell? Um, I got a lot of um, I got a lot of actually very positive response. So the council, as I said, is a very large uh, organization. It's been around for more than 25 years now. Uh, and they publish a great journal called Free Inquiry. And um, we actually found that the vast majority of Americans uh, reject that sort of evangelical um, uh, view and embrace uh, a much more moderate, sensible, mainstream views that are more in line with what we'd find here in Europe. Yeah, after I learned not to get really worried about the the detractors, the, the, the true believers who who were just so ideologically uh, committed that they couldn't see reason, I, I, was, I found it very rewarding to interact with people who, uh, who are rational and, and interested in promote, promoting progress in science. Do you think there has been progress? Uh, if you look at the election of Obama and re-election of Obama, mm -hmm. uh, is that a sign that things are getting better? Or? It is a sign, and I think the demographics are largely uh, um, in our favor. If, if you consider progress uh, uh, to be important, um, young people overwhelmingly are rejecting um, the, the sort of narrow-minded um, anti-science, anti-reason um, viewpoint. They are embracing uh, more of a humanist perspective. I won't say secular humanist because there's plenty of uh, religious humanists as well. And, you know, the humanist tradition dates back Uh, to Christianity and uh, the Renaissance. Um, and the principles that secular humanists and religious humanists sh uh, share largely overlap. So I'm encouraged by young people who are rejecting um, religious uh, uh, demagoguery and extremism in every religion. So even here in Europe, right, where um, Islam is, uh, is, is the big issue, um, uh, We have an emergence, I think, of a, of a sort of secular uh, middle um, in young people, mm -hmm. and that is encouraging to me. Right. How would you uh, contrast your stance with sort of more militant forms of atheism, like people like Dawkins and so forth, uh, this tempted to say that, that religion is stupid and people ought to converge, or should we let people be as long as they don't harm others? Well, as I said, I was raised by liberal parents who, um, while they were happy to give me their views, let me find my own way. As it turned out, I, I grew up not believing in any, any religion. Um, but that was my choice. Um, and I think had I been made to reject religion, it, I would have had a different perspective. I might have reacted negatively. I may have embraced yeah. Scientology or something. <laughs> um, I think that given the facts, people, and this accords with my general theory of ethics as well, and it's more or less a you know, John Stuart Mill uh, brand of, uh, of liberalism, people need to be able to confront the op options and come to their own decisions given all the facts. I, and I, I reject the notion that, that Dawkins and Hitchens and others were uh, militant atheists. I think they're, they're giving their opinions honestly and fairly. I've never seen that. I've met um, Richard Dawkins and, and had lovely conversations with him and his wife. Th these are not militant people. Okay? These are people who have uh, uh, strong opinions, uh, who are happy to express them in a strong language, um, but nobody wants to con they don't want to convert anybody. I think that they're on the side of presenting all the facts. Um, now, to people for whom facts are uh, anathema, uh, that might appear to be militantism, right? Uh, but, um, yeah, I reject the notion that, there's this, that somehow the new atheists are militant. Now, 
Will everybody come to the same conclusion? That, that, doubtful, right? There's always going to be believers and there's always going to be people who have um, their own opinions and, and I think that's fair as long as they come to them um, through their own path. So no, I don't think I'm... I don't think I'm militant, nor do I think the people you mentioned are militant. <laughs> yeah, I think you're right, actually. I, I've seen some militant strands, and like some of his uh, sort of spontaneous responses have been very um, to the effect that there's a correlation, if not causation, between intelligence and religion. Yeah, I think, okay, so I think it's just bad form to call somebody stupid because they have an irrational belief. Mm-hmm. Okay, you're not going to change their mind that way. You may believe that, and it may be true. But it may not be true, too. Sometimes people hold irrational beliefs, uh, even when they have good evidence against them, because it fulfills some other need. Mm-hmm. So it's just bad strategy to try to, if you're trying to change somebody's mind. But if you read uh, books by these so-called militant atheists, they're actually largely positive arguments about the general truth of science and the perhaps historical uh, wrongs that have been caused by religion. Right. I would argue with their their choice of terms occasionally, but for the most part, I've seen them um, use rational argument, and you know, I, we all have to watch what we say in a heavily mediated culture. Yeah. <laughs> no, I actually, I, I do agree with you. Um, there's one thing I wanted to ask you, but I'm not sure how to sort of <laughs> cut this into the conversation. But um, I was reading up a bit on Barry Smith. I was intrigued by this a letter that he wrote in 1992 to the Times. Uh, concerning Jacques Derrida receiving an honorary degree from Cambridge University. And Barry Smith uh, reacted quite... uh, (laughs) He was quite hostile towards this. Um, Do you have similar... um, Well, of course you have certain affinities towards certain traditions in philosophy, but do you also have other traditions in philosophy you find more or less useless, as uh, Barry Smith uh, implied? I suppose I, I have a tendency to knee-jerk rejection of anything tending on postmodern. Yeah. I, I think that, um, but I have, to, I have to qualify that by saying that I am also fond of and interested in uh, continental philosophy. The worst parts of continental philosophy have been sort of um, usurped by postmodernism. Uh, but there is an awful lot of interesting uh, continental philosophy rooted in people like Husserl uh, and Sartre. Um, forgive my American pronunciation. Um, that I think are very worthwhile. I think there is some extremely good work done in continental philosophy even today that is not postmodern. Um, and the distinction is, uh, I think, important. So when we see philosophers alluding to sort of the postmodern catchwords of narrative, etc., you know, the Derrida strain of, of continental philosophy, we have to, I think we have to be on guard uh, because sometimes it's used with very little uh, rigor. Yeah. Okay? It's possible, and, it's, and so I, I have to check my knee-jerkism. Yeah. Um, it's possible to talk about uh, things like narrative and textuality, etc., without being unrigorous. All right. In fact, when I'm discussing uh, expressions, I'm cognizant that there is a, a good work in continental philosophy that is worth paying attention to. Yep. So I, I think, yeah, I think we need to not and not uh, uh, flame fan the flames of the continental analytic divide because I don't think that's useful. Sure. Uh, but we have to be um, wary of the worst strains of um, of um, postmodernism. Mm-hmm. You mentioned Sartre. Have you been sort of personally inspired by existentialism and that kind of philosophy? Yeah, I have actually. So I think that um, you know Sartre was also a, a student of Husserl mm-hmm. um, and. Um, Again, methodologically, I think that he owes a great deal to Husserl, and I think there's something to be said for uh, phenomenology as a as a way to approach uh, philosophy. Absolutely. And Sartre is on, in the same uh, strain. And actually, yeah, Sartre I think provides some um, interesting and useful uh, philosophy, uh, largely in his um, uh, in his narratives. 
So I find his, uh, his works of fiction and his plays um, to be um, uh, inspiring. Yeah. Yeah, so I, 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 I encourage people who are analytic um, to not dismiss uh, the, the um, early phenomenologists mm-hmm. because there's, I think, some good work uh, to be found and inspiration to be found in them as well. Exactly. Yeah, I was also want to talk about your, uh, your affiliation with popular culture. Mm-hmm. Uh, you've written about uh, Battlestar Galactica and South Park. Uh, I had a look at your Facebook interest page. That is a remarkable eclectic collage of uh, interests. Yeah. Um, and, and most recently, uh, you edited a book on Breaking Bad. Uh, what was it about Breaking Bad that, um, that caught your philosophical interest? Picking up from our Sartre discussion, mm-hmm. I find fiction uh, an interesting way into philosophical problems mm-hmm. um, and questions. Uh, and uh, philosophers have, have used fiction and, and narrative as well uh, to introduce philosoph- philosophical themes and questions. But it's also true that a great deal of fiction writers have um, introduced philosophical themes uh, into their work with not necessarily with the sort of rigor that philosophers care about, but with possibilities open for us to examine and use. Um, so yeah, you, you missed Transformers from that list. Uh, oh, right. <laughs> I also wrote a, a, a one for the Transformers book. I think the popular culture and philosophy um, a series of books has been very important in introducing philosophical themes to general audiences. People who watch certain movies or shows um, sometimes uh, have insights into questions that philosophers have pondered for you know thousands of years. Yeah. And I think it's I think it behooves us well as philosophers uh, to use that as an in, intro uh, to philosophy uh, for people who are interested. Mm-hmm. So where, it, where there's some connection, where there's some way to try to uh, um, you know, educate people about um, philosophical uh, thinking that has already occurred through um, modern popular culture, uh, or even older popular culture, mm-hmm. uh, then we ought to do so. Mm-hmm. Um, Breaking Bad, for me, is a, it was, a, you know, it was a gap in the popular culture series as far as I was concerned. To me, it was a, um, a, a show that was ripe for uh, philosophical analysis, especially about ethics, um, because of the nature of the character. The character is a compelling sort of everyman character who goes through this remarkable evolution um, that any one of us could envision. Um, and... And there's a so every man is not just a, a word; it comes from a, a medieval uh, morality play. And more or less, all of the I think all that we can see happening to Walter White in Breaking Bad is a morality play um, uh, with a great deal of importance, I think, in uh, in our sort of modern uh, lives. We watch Breaking Bad from the beginning thinking that Walter has been uh, ill-used by society. Uh, That somehow, like many of us, he was overlooked uh, for his hidden genius or um, his worth underpaid and underappreciated by um, family and society. But we also learn that that he has these, these faults Um, that have led him to a number of bad choices. And it is these faults, these character flaws, that I think that make the show uh, very compelling Mm -hmm. because we learn more and more about them as he goes, you know, bad. And eventually just downright evil. (laughs) With the knowledge of biology and chemistry that you've amassed through your work on patenting and so on now, you're not tempted to start up a meth lab. (laughs) Well, who isn't, right? (laughs) Well, actually, on that note, uh, thanks a lot for coming. My pleasure. Well, there you have it. If you found this interesting, I strongly recommend reading Kupsa's work. 
and I strongly recommend really questioning the legitimacy and usefulness of the current patenting and intellectual property regime. Is it really worth all the lawsuits and criminalizing the youth? I don't know. I think David is right that we're seeing the desperation of a dying regime right now, and there are interesting times ahead. Speaking of interesting times ahead, I will be going to Australia in March, and I've got some really interesting interviews scheduled down there. I might even be able to interview a philosopher who has been a personal hero of mine ever since my undergrad days. So look forward to that and some other episodes I've got lying in the vault. Go like the Facebook page or follow me on Twitter in order to stay updated. And I hope that you'll be back again for the next episode of Such That Cast. (laughs) 